This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, one year out from the pandemic. Hey y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So most of us remember very clearly the day that coronavirus became real. And for most people in North America, it was the same day, March 11th or so. But for a few people, that day came later. So when did you show up at the Big Brother house for season eight? Like, what was the timeline? When did you show up? Okay, so I was taken away from the world, like kidnapped, as I would like to joke about it, um, on February 19, 2020. This is Hira Diol. My name is uh, Hira Diol. Uh, I was on Big Brother Canada season eight last year. Yeah, first, let me start by saying that when I got taken, COVID wasn't really, like, I didn't think much of it. Yeah. You know, leaving, leaving the world, I didn't really even think about it. Big Brother, for those who do not know, it's this reality show where a group of people who've never met live in a house with cameras everywhere. They are recorded all the time, and you can vote people out. Just like it happens in all other Big Brother seasons, Hira and his castmates were cut off from everything going on in the actual world. But this was one year ago, March of 2020. Which means, as coronavirus began to become a thing, Hira and his castmates had no idea. They weren't watching the public health briefings. They were not watching politicians begin to discuss the threat of coronavirus more and more. Hira and his castmates had no idea. Until the show was eventually forced to tell them what was going on. So they call us all to the living room to talk. It's the executive producer of the show. House guests. Hi. I have some news to give you guys from the outside world. Uh, we all go to the living room. We just think it's a standard, uh, like going over certain rules. There was a virus in China called the coronavirus. But uh, Aaron Brock, who's the executive producer of the show, she starts talking about uh, COVID uh, and how it's become a pandemic. We've contacted all of your caretakers directly just to check in on them and see how they're doing. And just so you guys know, everyone has confirmed that they're healthy. Uh, it, was, it was weird. And we kind of like joked about it. Like, hey, we may be the only people in the whole world that really don't know what's going on out there. There could be uh, an apocalypse going on yeah. out there. And we're just in this house, locked in here. Today on the show, we are looking back on the year that changed everything. A year full of loss, with more than half a million Americans gone because of the pandemic. A year that challenged us in ways a lot of us didn't know we could be challenged. Later on in the show, we're going to hear about why, even though we're ready to get back to whatever normal is, that it might not be as easy as we think. And we'll also hear reflections about what this year has meant to you. But first, back to Hira Diol in the Big Brother house, back to March 2020. So after Big Brother producers tell the cast that they are now in this worldwide pandemic, something crazy happened. They kept on filming. 
the contestants stayed in the house. A few days later, during another coronavirus update for the cast, Hira asked if sporting events were still happening. Still taking place. Every major sports league has now been shut down or postponed. Whoa. Guys, the world has stopped. Oh, man. Wow. The world has stopped. Like that's just so nuts. then, at, at a certain point, they call the whole thing off. House guests, it's me, Aaron. Hi. Hi, Aaron. I have some difficult news to share. Sorry, we got to shut this down. We're going to send y'all home. Bye-bye. Yeah. Unfortunately, as a result... Oh, my God, you guys. We are forced to officially end the production of this season of Big Brother Canada. Oh, my God. <gasps> What's your reaction to that one? Oh, I cry like a little baby. Like, really? I was... I was devastated. Really? I was shocked as well because I, I, I didn't see it coming to that. I was just very, very heartbroken and that the dream was coming to an end because it's been a dream, especially someone like I'm the first Sikh turban wearing person on the show. And people like me don't get those opportunities to be on national TV like that. So it was, I was very, it was, it was heartbreaking. Mm. But at the same time, uh, the moment I saw my wife and daughter when I got out of there, I was put that all behind me. Yeah. So talk about that. Describe your first few moments or hours back in the real world, walking into the lockdowns. What was the first thing that stuck out in your mind that you saw? So the first thing was immediately as you exit those house doors, mm-hmm. you usually are greeted with the the staff there, like the production team and everyone. Yeah. Those guys were all wearing masks and they were like, stay six feet apart. Oh, wow. They were saying, just stay, don't like, cause you know, your natural reaction is to go for a hug or a handshake with these yeah. people. And they're just like, stay back six feet. And then. What was that like? It was weird. Cause I wanted uh, to hug some of these people and handshakes and whatnot. So they were just like, stay back. And I was like, whoa, this is, <laughs> I know it's, I get it, it's serious. But we've been locked in the house. You guys could hug me at least, right? We, we've been quarantined. Uh, I didn't say that, but like that's what I was thinking. That's when I realized, I'm like, or it hit me even more. I'm like, oh man, these, these precautions must be serious. So you come out and they're still staying. Everyone's staying like, like avoiding you like the plague. And then I see my wife and obviously I hug her and kiss her and whatnot. And then like my wife's wearing gloves. She's got a mask on. My daughter's in the back seat, and like I didn't even. She's like, "Don't touch the door handles of the car." Wow. <laughs> and my wife is just going over all these things with me uh, throughout the car ride home, and and the roads are like very empty around rush hour, so there's no cars on the road. That right there was another weird thing. I'm like, oh my god, this world is totally different than when we left. Yeah. Um, you know what I keep going back to and thinking about as I hear you telling me your story and I watch those videos, I was wondering before we chatted, you know, was the lockdown for all of us more traumatic if you were in it or if you were kind of shielded from it for a bit like you were? And it sounds pretty traumatic the way that you had to go through it because there were like waves of it. First, when they tell you, then when they say it's getting worse, then when they say you're going home, then you have that last night with your cast, then the next day you go into the real world. It felt like four specific moments of trauma, whereas like for the rest of us, there was just that one day in the real world where it all shut down. You think it was worse going through your COVID revelation that way? 
than the rest of us and how we went through uh, it. Yeah, I think so because I think when you're in the real world, you have the access to information and news, and you're the, the, like Google. You can Google anything, and you kind of anticipate that. But for us, yeah, we got the two announcements, and you know we were kind of nervous. But when we got that last announcement, it was just so sudden. Mm. When you don't expect something or anticipate it, and it hits you, mm. it's so much worse. Yeah. Have you heard from people who were fans of the show, watched the show, and watched what y'all went through? Like, what do those folks say, the viewers? I've gotten, like, when I got out of there, I got many messages in terms of, like, hey, you really did yourself proud. You really did the community proud. Or you really did, like, people that look different proud. And you were such a fresh of, or breath of fresh air in that house. Yeah. And especially during COVID, you were you were like our escape. We watched you twenty four seven, and we were in lockdown, quarantined at home, and we got to watch you guys in there. So people really went to the show as an escape, somewhat. And I was really happy about that because if I came out of there with a short season, you know, didn't even get to finish it, and I came out with a lot of hate, that would be even more harder to handle. Guys. It's time for you to leave the Big Brother house. Thanks again to Hira Diol. Coming up, I talk with Anne Helen Peterson about why getting back to normal may be harder than we think. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. On NPR's Consider This podcast, we help you make sense of one big story in the news every day, like how to combat disinformation and conspiracy theories, which pose a real threat to democracy, and what life looks like after you're vaccinated, the next phase of do's and don'ts. All that in 15 minutes every weekday. Listen now to Consider This from NPR. So to mark this one-year anniversary of the coronavirus, I wanted to get some perspective on this pandemic year from strangers. To do so, I went somewhere this week that was very beautiful, as it always is. Venice Beach, here in Los Angeles. This is weird because I have not been out in the world with a microphone 
asking strangers questions since probably June of last year. And I sure hope I haven't forgotten how to do this. Thoughts and prayers. How was your year? It feels like short, but also long. It was unpredictable. Very unpredictable. It's like you got a fin for yourself, but at the same time, the unpredictableness, I didn't like it. I was a live music photographer. I was supposed to do like some big gigs, like some big festivals, and everything was completely shut down, on hold. And so for me, I, I was kind of like wondering, like, what's the point of my work? But it was like very productive. Definitely a learning, big learning experience. Because of all the quarantine, it really helped me sit back and realize like what's really important. And then like a lot of stuff that I thought was going to make or break me really wasn't important at all. You know, it's been really healing for me. I, I got a dog and I started graduate school. What was the hardest part of this pandemic for you, looking back on this year? I'll say primarily it's just the, the personal connection. I feel like a lot of times, you know, we thrive off of community. You can't get people together unless they're really close to you. Like, I was on the go all the time, so being in the house was like, dang, like, I really got to talk to my mama. Like, <laughs> I mean, my mom passed, so that was really hard. I'm so sorry. Thank you. She was... 92 and in assisted living and she couldn't have visitors so she declined rapidly because of that failure to thrive they said and what was it like having to see her pass and be buried with no i'm guessing no real funeral even Yeah, we haven't been able to have a funeral so i mean it was hard it was hard to not be able to visit her when she was sick and i felt so powerless what would you tell yourself in hindsight, the you of a year ago, as they were shutting stuff down, what advice would you give that you of a year ago? If you focus on the past, you get depressed. If you focus on the future, you get super anxious, and you should just focus on the right now, here in this moment. Me, I would say plan. Like, be prepared for anything. Because a lot of people, I feel like, didn't prepare themselves for, like, maybe pay cuts or losing a job. They just always thought they were going to have this job. Be very gentle with yourself because I think, I think the, the pressure that we put on ourselves to be able to perform, um, I guess, in any aspect with any level of variables can sometimes be too much. To be confident in my own like intuition and what I feel is right, because when I did that and just listened to myself, then everything was good and it's still good. We're still moving. <laughs> Thanks to all those folks who talked to me out at Venice Beach earlier this week. Pamela, Greg, Daniel, Angelique, Desmond, Maureen, Michaela, and Katie. So a thing that I noticed about all those strangers I talked to, it's that they all had a really positive outlook on how the last year affected them and what might come next. And overwhelmingly, it feels like everyone is just ready to charge right out into post-pandemic life. We want to jump back into all the communal activities and the parties and the weekend hangs, the traveling, the concerts. We want to make up for lost time. But that feeling is a lot of pressure, especially if you're still working through all the different ways this pandemic year has changed you. My next guest has been thinking about this, and she also wrote all about this. Anne Helen Peterson published an essay last week called No, I'm Not Ready. And I liked it a lot because she talks about how the return to quote-unquote normal is going to be messy. 
and we might feel a bit ambivalent about all of it. Anne Helen thinks that most of us haven't fully processed all of our feelings around the pandemic, especially all the grief. We will talk more about that grief later, but I want to start this conversation by talking about that pressure to get back out there. So this image that Anne Helen used in her piece is from an ad campaign for the company Suit Supply. And this image is so weird. It is a very sexual photograph of multiple tangled bodies, only one actually wearing a suit, and all of them, all these people are just making out. With lots of tongue, an egregious amount of tongue. And to me, it crosses this line from like, oh, they're like horny for one another to like, they are ravenous. There is this real hunger for human touch. And the name of the campaign was The New Normal. They're trying to get people (laughs) to buy suits for weddings this summer, but also communicate that sort of ravenous hunger for each other. It is insane. It seems as if the message this visual is saying is our new normal is going to be a bacchanal. But what you say in your essay is like, not so fast, before we really get into the party, we need to understand that we really haven't yet dealt with our year of what you call sustained slow motion collective trauma. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be a party pooper here. Like, that's the thing. I think I'm not going to be like, hey, guys, like not so much tongue when you're making out at your bacchanal. Um, it's more that I knew that I was feeling this real pause. And I think that hesitance, I don't think that it means that people don't want the pandemic to end. But a lot of the habits that we've adopted, they're not short term. They are things that have become normalized. Yeah. Like I have programmed my brain for the last year to be on high alert whenever I am in proximity to other people Mm. who I don't live with. Mm. So it's going to take a lot of deprogramming for that alert to go away. Yeah. Yeah. I also like that you point out this expectation that we'll just feel one emotion or one type of emotion once we can go back to the world is not true. You have this wonderful graph where you write, you're probably going to feel exhausted when you want to feel exhilarated panicked when you thought you'd feel safe, combative when all you want is to feel soothed. Your social skills have atrophied and you're probably going to get in some big fights that will seem like they're about nothing but are actually about everything. You're going to crave some of the parts of quarantine life you swore you never would. You're probably going to overplan and overschedule and feel an alarming and unexpected need for solitude and have to pull back and reevaluate. Yeah, I think it's possible to feel a lot of things at once. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that that duality is something that I don't think we're very good at embracing a lot of times. Being like, I'm so excited, but also I kind of want to throw up. And I think that that is something we're going to have to deal with. And, you know, people from Australia have emailed me and told me that, yes, you're exactly right. This is how it feels. Like, at first, you're going to be so exhausted Like you're going to hang out with people for two hours and you'll be like, that's it. That's all I can take. I'm done. Right. Um, Yeah. But it will gradually go back. But it does take, they said, uh, take several months. Yeah. Well, and also what you get at in the essay is besides having an emotional grab bag when we're back out in the world, there's also one emotion that we collectively haven't allowed ourselves to feel enough. And that is grief. Yeah. And this part of it is that we haven't had the space to, right? Yeah. Because 
we haven't had the actual events of mourning that um, mm-hmm. force us to to make space for that sort of grief um, and processing. But then also I think sometimes people don't recognize their day-to-day experience as something that can be traumatizing. Mm. Um, there used to be this understanding that like only you know people who'd been to war had PTSD, but your life, your daily life can create incredible trauma. Yeah. Well, and how do we name some of these things? Mm-hmm. I think yeah. for a lot of us, the impetus is let me not complain at all. You yep. know, if I didn't lose a loved one, yep. if I didn't get drastically ill myself, and if I didn't lose my job, I better not complain about anything because I'm very fortunate. Yep. But even still, there is a certain trauma at a minimal level, at least, that we've all been through. And yeah. we, don't, we don't have a way to mourn that together. And I think of when Joe Biden and Kamala Harris kind of tried to do that. And they had like the 500,000 candles. And I saw the image and I said, okay. And it meant nothing to me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, would I even be able to collectively mourn in a space that was created to collectively mourn? Right. Right. And there's so many things, too, apart from the actual deaths and the actual, uh, you know, long term disability and and suffering that people have endured. Like, how do you mourn the fact that we have taken dramatic step back in terms of like women's equality in the workplace? Mm. How do you mourn the fact that Gen Z is going to have (laughs) There's just going. There's a seismic bomb that has gone off in terms of like their placement in the workplace and how they're going to conceive of like the rest of their careers. Like, how do you mourn that? Yeah. For me, the big thing is like, how can we have a vocabulary to talk about this stuff? Like, how can we yeah. actually name what we're doing as recovering from grief, and then be able to make space for all of the weirdness and uncomfortableness and joy that's going to follow. Yeah, yeah. You know, my editor is messaging me now. She says, I am also worried about losing the smallness of my life. Mm-hmm. There is an intimacy in my family I am worried about losing. It is real. You know, it's like even me living alone, I'm used to the small life I've carved out for me and my dog. Yeah. <laughs> and like to open that back up again. How? Have you left your dog for any significant amount of time yet? No. And it's crazy. Like it's to the point now. If I'm gone for more than an hour, when I get back, I can tell that she was worried. Yeah. And she's such a self-sufficient dog until now. Yep. Well, and I think if anything, we can think of that as one of the ways to maybe think of the rest of our lives. Like our dogs are going to get used to us being away again, but we have to ease them into it. You know, it's going to be like two hours, then three hours, then maybe we take a vacation without them. Can you imagine? Um, and being away from each other too. I've noticed this with my, with my partner and with my dogs that like, I, I miss them, right? You're away for mm-hmm. even just a day and you're like, oh, wow, I miss them yeah. in a way that is, is pretty foreign to my self-sufficient self. And I, I think there's something to be appreciated about that too, how can we create space for, for that feeling and, and to cultivate more of that intimacy while also, yeah. you know, stepping outside of it, too? Coming up, more of my conversation with writer Anne Helen Peterson. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. 
We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Hearing loss is a fact of life for many humans, but not for fish, reptiles, or birds. People noticed in chickens that they could take them to, say, heavy metal concert, blast the ears really to oblivion, and then within days, new hair cells would begin to sprout. The science of sound. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. And so many other times when a great national crisis ends, we are shown, in hindsight... These images of the day of celebration and then it's all normal again. Yeah. I think of all the imagery around like the wars being over or the troops coming home. Yeah. And it feels as if our American mythology guarantees me that day when we've gone through something so big and bad together. And what I feel now is that this war with COVID might be coming to a close soon but we won't just have a war is over day no. to market and say, go forth. It'll be much more complex and it will last much longer than that. And I'm angry that the American mythology that I was taught never taught me this possibility. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about uh, the examples that we have of actual like cathartic endings like that, like the last one was the end of World War II, right? Yeah. There is no yeah. there is no end of Vietnam. There was no end of mm. Iraq. There's no mm. end of Afghanistan. Like we are in an age of forever wars, right? And forever yeah. pandemics. Like this is uh. the real fear with the pandemic is it's going to come back in the fall. Like there is going to be a slight resurgence in some capacity in the fall and we're going to have to deal with it and it's going to be really annoying and no one wants to mm. think about it again, but we're going to have to. And, like, all of our political stuff, still broken, right? Social and racial justice, Mm -hmm. still really broken. The economy, Mm -hmm. still not great. Like, (laughs) these things are (laughs) still... Nothing is actually fixed just because we can go to happy hour again. Preach. (laughs) Preach. (laughs) What is the biggest lesson that you've learned about grieving yourself Hmm. over the last year? Well, I think a lot of my lessons about grief have been learned over time. Um, I had yeah. a, I lost someone who's very important to me when I was 23. And I think when you're younger, you don't, like the parameters of grief just aren't clear to you. It just, it like, it pops up in the way that you deal with relationships. Like it can overcome you just while you're listening to a song in the car just all over the place. And I don't think there's any sort of like proper way that you can grieve someone to make it so that that never happens in the future. Like you can't isolate and, and cordon off your, your grief. 
but you can acknowledge it. And I think the more you acknowledge it as like something that just lives with you, right? It's just something that is with you. Um, the better you can not be surprised by it, right? Like not have it overwhelm you. But also sometimes let it overwhelm you, like feel your feelings. I think that's something that a lot of us either have felt too many feelings over the pandemic, right? Like you don't want to yeah. feel your feelings anymore or have gone into survival mode where you haven't really had space to feel what you're feeling. And I think that like whatever the case is for you and whatever your coping mechanism is, just like recognize it for what it is um, and name it and, and acknowledge it and Give it a seat at the table. Yeah. We're going to call this conversation Feel Your Feelings. (laughs) One thing people were really excited about commenting on this article, they're like, I'm going to be so awkward. We're just going to like say all the wrong things and say all the right things and just say everything and like everything's going to be weird. And there's an excitement to that. And I think that if we can lean into the rawness of all of this, um, that's, that's a great way forward. Listen, to anyone hearing the sound of my voice right now, if you see me out in the world in the aftertimes, be careful if you ask me how I'm doing, because I'm probably actually finally going to really tell you. (laughs) Good. Lean into it. Yes. Hey, thank you so much for this chat. Always a pleasure. Come back on soon and we'll do it again. Of course. Thank you so much. Thanks again to friend of the show, Anne Helen Peterson. She's on Substack. You can find her at annhelen.substack.com. Her newsletter is called Culture Study. All right, to close out the show, instead of hearing our listeners share the best parts of their week, we wanted to try something new. I want to share a poem with y'all. This poem is called Small Kindnesses by Danusha Lamaris. Now, to be clear, I'm not really a poetry kind of guy. I don't seek poems out. But a few months ago, when we all were just sick and tired of the pandemic and saw no end in sight, and we all just seemed to be in a funk, I ran across this poem that made me smile, and it cheered me up, and it also kind of made me cry a little bit. And for months, I have tried to find a way to share that poem with all of you. And I think right now this week this episode as we mark the one-year anniversary of the pandemic i think now is the time i've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle people pull in their legs to let you by or how strangers still say bless you when someone sneezes a leftover from the bubonic plague Don't die, we're saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it. To smile at them and for them to smile back. For the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now. So far from tribe and fire. Only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy? These fleeting temples we make together when we say, Here, have my seat. Go ahead, you first. I like your hat. 
thanks to all those who recorded themselves reading. Kinsha, Asia, Alini, Jake, Harrison, Lisa, Jesse, and Max. And of course, special thanks to Danusha Lamaris. That was her poem. It's called Small Kindnesses. And you can find that poem in her book, Bonfire Opera. Before we close the show, this very special show marking one year of pandemic life, I want to take some time to personally thank you, our listeners. The team that makes It's Been a Minute has been working from home, all of us, for about a year now. And it's been hard not to be with each other and to be with our communities. But the community that we fostered with our listeners has sustained us and sustained me so much over this last year. So thank you. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Andrea Gutierrez, and Sylvie Douglas. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the TED Radio Hour... In the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun.